Good morning, good afternoon, salutations, greetings, it's Hannah, welcome to the show. Different intro, little bit today. Um, before we dive in, I want to remind you that if you would like to make a monetary donation to this show on a monthly basis, you can do that. Uh, anchor.fm slash high dash on dash spirits. Support this program, support this endeavor. We would greatly appreciate it. Today on the show, my friend Travis Murphy of Lightning Orchestra. We talk about Atlanta, Special Sauce, Kevin Scott, Fela Kuti, Colonel Bruce, and so much more. This was such a fabulous conversation and wonderful, wonderful talk. I learned so much. I hope that this conversation is as meaningful to you as it was and is to me. I want to thank Travis for your time uh, and your wisdom. Thank you, Lightning Orchestra, for a great record, which is out now. It's called Source and Deliver. You can buy it um, in all kinds of places. Travis talks about that in the episode, so make sure you go ahead and listen. Uh, And thank you to Atlanta for being as beautiful and magical as you are and delivering us all of this wonderful, wonderful music. If you'd like to continue to support Lightning Orchestra, you can follow them at Lightning Orchestra on Instagram and follow Travis as well at Hologram Trav. So that's the spiel today. Go get the record, support local musicians, support your scene in whatever way you can and enjoy the show. So well, thank you for asking. Thank you for joining me on the show. Happy to have you. Um, so I want to start with first by saying congratulations on a great record. Thank you. Thank you. It's really, it's, it's one of those albums I listened to, and I can tell that you guys, like, worked your ass off on this. Right? Um, can you talk a little bit about how this whole project came together? Um, what was the sort of impetus for creating an album like this right now? Um, well, like the way it came together was I moved to Atlanta in 2013. Um, I'm from Chicago and, you know, a few years for a few years before that, I'd been kind of just bouncing around living in different places. Uh, and I kind of finally settled in Atlanta after I'd been like traveling around for a few years. Um, I'd been working during the summers with this music camp as a camp counselor and staffer of the camp and the camp was based out of Atlanta. So some of the coworkers I worked with lived here and they're like, you should come check out Atlanta. I think you'd really like it. The music scene's amazing. And uh, some, uh, some people I worked with had a roommate move out at the time and just like the stars kind of aligned. So I came down here and um, ended up like finding pretty much straight away a really cool uh, improv music scene where there was, there's a couple of like musicians jams that I started attending that friends were hosting, which like up to that point in my life, like I, that wasn't a thing that I was into. Like if I went, you know, even the idea of a musician's jam based on what I'd been exposed to in my life up to that point was just like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's usually some corny, like, to me, it would always just like devolve into some wanky, bluesy crap or something. Uh, you know, no offense. Yeah, I think, I, and I, actually, I think like I've probably developed more of an appreciation even for jams that devolve into wanky, bluesy crap at this point. 
But that wasn't what was happening at these jams. These jams were really, really cool. And there was a, a ton of different um, directions that they would go in. And, and it was improvisers that were playing on a very high level. Um, and it was everything. So it was truly free. So the spirit of these jams would be kind of in the vein of what I would consider free jazz, but like in a much more expansive way than what I'd ever experienced before when I'd gone to free jazz jams. Cause you know, I used to go to free jazz jams all the time in Chicago, but there was almost even a sense like in retrospect of like, there's a certain way that, that you do free jazz. Like free jazz is like, clonk, you know, like, you know, it's just like, it, there's no structure to it. But like, this was like, uh, you know, it could it could be a free jazz thing. It could it had like influences of soul and funk and R&B and drum and bass and dub and sometimes it would even go in the direction of like metal. You know, like it was like no holds bar. Anything could happen. Um, and so the jam that ended up being the one that really became like my home base in Atlanta was at this place called Elliott Street Pub, and it was run by my friend Kevin Scott who is an incredible bass player. He's played with a ton of people. Uh, he's, he's toured with Jimmy Herring, playing with uh, John McLaughlin, doing Maha Vishnu stuff. He's, he's played with Donnie McCaslin. He's played with, uh, he's got this thing called Wednesday Night Titans with, with Zach Danzinger. Um, he, he's played with everybody, and he's just like the, probably like my favorite bass player on the planet. And so, the scene that sort of gravitated around his jam was really incredible musicians, but it was also like he held the container of the jam in a way to really like um, repel uh, most people. <laughs> so like it was, I said this in, a, in an interview the other day, but like the jam was kind of designed to like scare people away. And um, so, but then the people that ended up staying was like, they were really there. They were part of the family and they were there for like the right reasons. But the jam was to me, like when I found it, I was like, whoa, this is like, this is like Miles electric era stuff. Like I'd never really heard people doing that in that way. You know, like it was uh, like on the corner era. Like that, that was my first impression when I, when I found it. Um, and for me, uh, you know, this, this Herbie Hancock album called Sex Tent that I found when I was like 18 years old uh, was a huge influence for me, something I always loved. And it was like that kind of stuff. So I don't know how much that'll make sense to the average listener, but very out, very psychedelic, very free. And also there was like this undertone always of just total absurdity and chaos to it. But also it was like, you know, those guys could do anything. The people that frequented that jam could play anything they wanted. They were mostly all professional musicians. Um, and they were just playing. They were just really, you know, it was really free. So that was the place that kind of became my musical home base in Atlanta. I'd really wanted to start a band like Lightning Orchestra, probably since I was like 14 or 15 years old, uh, when I when I discovered the band War. And you know, around that time, like I kind of discovered them by accident. I was looking for the song War by Edwin Starr and I didn't know what it was, but I kept like asking people, what's this song? And they'd be like, uh, yeah, there's a band called War. You know, this was like a month or two. I'm like on this quest to find out what the song was I heard on the radio and this was before the internet. 
And, um, you know, one day at a flea market, I found these war records. And I was like, oh, finally, I'm going to find this song, which I didn't, of course, because it's not by war. But when I heard War, who is this big uh, funk man from Long Beach, California, that formed in the 70s, um, maybe late 60s, I don't think probably 70s. So, um, I was like, whoa, I want to have a band like this sometime, at some point, you know? And so I'd been kind of trying to make a band like that happen in Chicago for a long time. And it, I just wasn't in the right place. It was like the, the scene in Chicago was just too kind of, cordoned off uh you know the jazz scene was the jazz scene the indie scene was the indie scene you know the rock and roll the corporate band scene you know whatever it was like there wasn't as much uh intermingling so it wasn't it just wasn't a very hospitable place to start a 10 person you know psychedelic funk band or whatever um so but atlanta was really hospitable to that outside of you know, when, when I got here, I realized I can't really start a band. Like, I've always been in a band. I'm not going to have, like, a band dynamic. Like, this is just going to be impossible because everyone is too busy. Everyone's always playing music. I mean, it was kind of like uh, trying to be monogamous around every people who are polyamorous or something. Like, I was like, well, maybe I'm not going to have, like, a primary partner. <laughs> you know, like, maybe I'm just going to sleep around for a while and see what works. I mean, like, that's kind of what it was like. It was like, when I started Lightning Orchestra, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to find people to just, like, have this bandwidth, which is what I had always known, where we, like, get together and we practice regularly, and, you know, we have a chemical reaction of some sort in the songs. You know, there might be one primary songwriter, but, you know, in, my, in the past, I've been in bands where it was kind of like, you know, it was a give and take among everybody, and we were a unit. Well, Eventually, like not too long after being in Atlanta and, and improvising a lot, I realized like this isn't going to be possible. I'm I'm older now. Everyone's really busy. Like I have to be the person with the vision for this. Um, I'm going to have to be the person to bring everybody together. I'm going to have to be the person to do the rehearsals, write the material. And what I wanted to do first, just to see who had chemistry working together, was just start doing covers. So um, I put together like a set list of a bunch of probably 30 songs at the time of just a bunch of old funk and soul and Afrobeat. You know, it was like, some of it, some of it was like deep cuts. Uh, some of it was like, you know, stuff, more well-known stuff, you know, it was like Curtis Mayfield, Isaac Hayes, you know, the JBs, the Brothers Johnson. Uh, and then we do like African stuff. We'd do like orchestra, polyrhythmo, Fela stuff. Um, Mulatu, you know, maybe like William Onyabar, like, you know, Peter King, stuff like that. Uh, so it was just kind of, for me, it started out as like, let's, let's get people together, all people pretty much that I knew from the Elliott Street Jam. Let's see who has chemistry. But it also kind of became like my version of music school because it was an opportunity, which I was already really getting a lot deeper into transcribing just to be able to try and hang with these people at the improv jam, you know? So it was an opportunity for me to get a lot deeper into transcribing things, understanding, you know, the arrangements of things. It was, it was really good for that. Uh, and then it was like good just to bring people together, see who had chemistry, um, be a band leader, you know? And for, for the first year and a half or maybe two years of the existence of Lightning Orchestra as like an entity, that's what it was. It was just, it was just covers and just gigging 
we had a monthly residency that we did at Elliott Street, uh, and then we we play in a few other clubs. Uh, and then after that, after a year and a half or so, I started integrating my own material into the fold until it eventually just became all all original stuff. That's awesome. Um, I, first of all, I'm so glad we got a Kevin Scott shout out on this show. Um, I was introduced to him by way of Jimmy Herring and the Five of Seven. Um, yeah. And he's a genius in his own right. Um, but I, I've said Absolutely. this... Right, and I've said this to you before. I'm so, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Just on that note, yeah, I mean, for like finding Kevin's jam was like literally for me being able to go see Jimi Hendrix like once a week or something. You know, it was like the guys that played at that jam, and I'm not like being hyperbolic. Like they're literally my favorite musicians on the planet. You know, like my friend Quinn Mason. Uh, is, is one of the people I met early on moving to Atlanta. He plays uh, in Kamal Williams' group now. Um, but he's a, he's a saxophone player. He plays tenor mostly now. He played alto when I met him more. But, um, yeah, like, he's literally my favorite musician on the planet. So I can't, under, I can't like, overstate, or I can't, I don't know what I, the thing is to say, like, I can't overemphasize, I can't emphasize enough how important that jam was like you know kebby the kebby williams uh you know i met him when i moved here at, first at quinn's jam at apache and then he would come there all the time you know the atlanta music scene is just like bonkers you know d'anthony parks I, w- I would go out to some of the the jams like at this other place aerosol you know and, and kebby and kevin and d'anthony had a thing they did together for a while so it's just yeah going there it's like I went there the first time and I, and I sucked, you know, but I was like, I'm going to come here every single week forever because this is the coolest shit ever. And like, that was what brought me into a deeper commitment to getting better at my craft. Cause it was like, there's just no way I can even try and play with these guys unless I get better. And I yeah. still feel like that all the time, you know what I mean? But yeah. So anyway. No, 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 that's that's beautiful information. And and I think it's interesting because I I did some digging because I know Kebby and um, I did some digging to find some videos of the the famed Kevin Scott jam session. And it reminded me a lot of stories that you hear about a guy like Sun Ra who would start his gigs by playing you know a whole bunch of crazy like dissonant you know madness sort of stuff and scare away all of the the squares you know and all the people that stayed were the people that stayed and they would just do like benny goodman covers for two hours you know (laughs) like (laughs) so i mean only sun ra could get away with something like that um but there's certainly so, yeah, go ahead. But I have something to say about that as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's definitely some special sauce in Atlanta. And it's, it's a really, um, it's a beautiful thing, I think. And it's, I love to hear that present in your record because I find that it's very rare to find a community of musicians who are as um, willing to go out on these sort of like sonic limbs as you see in a place like that, you know, like in Boston, you like things like that just don't exist here. They just don't, 
they don't exist even i haven't even really seen it in new york i mean maybe at like the 55 bar but that's like the only place you could go to see something in that you know ilk um so i think atlanta is this really unique unique place and, and i'm really i'm stoked that we were able to like touch on that it's very special and like exactly what you're saying is how i feel because and that's how i would feel being down there in that basement with like you know nine to 13 other people on those nights or whatever was just looking around and being like i don't think this is happening anywhere else in the country like this is special you know um but in regards to what you're saying about like the sun Ra thing like i i think that that jam was like a direct descendant as part of the lineage of sun Ra because really it wouldn't have existed without colonel bruce hampton who was a huge mentor of kevin scott Kevin's told me before that that jam is basically like a synthesis of Wayne Krantz and Colonel Bruce. And, um, you know, I got to play with Colonel Bruce a little bit. Um, there were some gigs he asked me to do, and I couldn't do them because I already had Lightning Orchestra stuff booked. But, like, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you know some stuff about Colonel Bruce. But Colonel Bruce has said that, and, and, and compared to a lot of people in, in our friend circle in Atlanta, I didn't, I didn't get to play with him that much. But the, the times I did play with him, it was really great. And it was like a special experience for me. Um, Colonel Bruce has said that like when he found out Sun Ra existed, that's when he like knew it was okay to exist, basically. You know, like he didn't, I, from what I gather of it, like he didn't really understand like what, anything was or like how to be in this world until he heard Sun Ra, you know? And um, that's like a real thing, you know? Like I listened to this Bob Dylan thing the other day. Um, it was him talking about, his, he was his lecture or whatever speech he gave when he got the Nobel prize for literature. Yeah. And he talked about uh, when he was a kid, when he was like 17 or 18 years old, he went and saw Buddy Holly and he's standing like in the front row and just like, you know, completely just like awestruck at Buddy Holly. And he's like just three feet away from him. And he goes, and then something crazy happened. Buddy Holly looks directly at me into my eyes and he transmitted something to me. And, and what's crazy is when, when, I, when I played with Colonel Bruce for like the first time, he, and I had heard about stories of this that he would like shoot lasers out of his eyes. But um, I'm like sitting at, you know, like I come to the van, I meet up with the people we're playing with and we get in the van, we're on our way to the gig and Colonel Bruce is in the front of the van and I'm in the back. And at some point he asked me a question and I was kind of like looking into the um, rear view mirror yeah. to see him while I'm talking to him. And he looks up into the rear view mirror and like makes eye contact with me in a way where it was just like, I can't even describe it. It was just like, like it went like into my fucking soul, like into my bones. And like, it was, it was like, all he did was look at me, but it was like, he looked at me in this way that like struck like terror in me. Like, I'd never experienced anything like that. And it wasn't like terror in a bad way. Like it was just like, it what the fuck you. was that? Yeah, I was like, what was that? You know? So that guy, I mean, Kroberson, like I said, like I have a great appreciation for him. I didn't get to spend much time around him. Kevin played with him for years and years and they were like, you know, 
very close. Um, but to me, he is an alien. But the only reason I mention that is because Bruce was like Sun Ra. Bruce, Bruce really was like, he was like an extraterrestrial in a very real way. So like, and just the fact that like, I got to spend very little time around with him and I experienced that like, like transmission, you know, yeah. that's why I know that he for sure gave that to Kevin a billion times over. So, you know, like that jam to me, yeah. And I always say that Sun Ra is a huge influence in, in the musical Lightning Orchestra as well. I do feel it was very much part of that lineage, you know. Absolutely. And the, the Bruce, I love Bruce stories are some of my favorite stories to get from people, you know, of, of him, you know, guessing people's birthdays and like, what is Bruce's real name? You know, like Bruce stories are, are some of my favorite, are some of my favorite stories. And I, I, I always loved that thing that he talked about. I think this was in the documentary, which if anybody listening, you should go find that documentary if you're looking for like a Bruce Hampton 101. It's called Basically right. Frightened, I think, right? And Basically Frightened? Yeah, I think that's the name of the movie. Yep. It came out like 10 years ago. But um, he was talking about the bands that he's been in and like the bands that he's put together, right? And um, so the question had something to do with how he picks musicians, right? And mm -hmm. the answer was, he said something to the effect of like, can you put spirit in the room? Can you put yeah. spirit in the room? And that's something that I think is so, it, it speaks to this larger concept of, you know, the purpose of what you're doing. Like, why are you here? You know, like Dave Schools yeah. talked about that in the movie as well. He's like, what are you doing here? Are you here to rock? Right? Are you here for- yeah, it, was about, it was about intent, right? Yes. Yeah about what's your intention and so i ask you now with this album now out with the band doing its own thing very much doing its own thing what is the intention yeah I, and i would agree like if there's a guiding force behind the things that i have learned especially in atlanta and that are present in the music scene that i've been in in atlanta it is that it's that yes put the spirit in the room, make this, it's alive, you know, mm -hmm. it's alive, it's happening now, you know, and that has been one of the biggest things. So for me, it's, it's about like unleashing something, you know, it's about, it's about activating something, you know, and maybe that activation is just life, but I think those are the things that I learned most from being around this circle of musicians in Atlanta is like, we're going to destroy the status quo so we can have actual, the actual liberation of what we are, you know, <laughs> like, let's just get rid of this entire framework of like the consensus reality that we normally exist in. And let's have something happening that's now. And it's, it's unpredictable. We don't know where it's going to go because it could go anywhere, you know, and that, that was kind of like the ethos because it was really all about commitment. It's about commitment to whatever is happening now, you know, um, kind of lost my train of thought of what I was saying, but yeah, for me, it's about 
Lightning Orchestra is about, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's like about, we're, to me, I think that we are something much, much larger and much greater than most people get to usually tap into, you know? Um, what we are as beings, what we are as consciousness, uh, that which we are connected to, which gives us life and gives us the creative ability to express it is, you know, is infinite. And it's like the most powerful thing in the universe. And for me, that's what Lightning Orchestra is. It's about sourcing that and delivering it. You know, that's why the record is called Source and Deliver. And it's about using that to, you know, oh yeah, like to activate something in people like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, like life existence freedom you know like we could do fucking anything with this mm-hmm. you know so because i know there was times i remember being at a wolf pack gig on like halloween one time and yeah totally and just having this realization of like holy fuck this is alive this yeah. thing is alive you know like this is a, a i don't even know how to describe it it's just like you know you you've been to show where people are playing the same set every night and you can feel that they're just phoning it in and sometimes when you've been on tour for three months or whatever you sometimes you just gotta do that you know because you got you got to really take everything on the terms of what is happening on you can't make it try and be like another night or something but you know what's cool about having that that strong element of improvisation is that it can keep everything just like you know what's gonna happen what's gonna happen right now but I remember having this realization of like, holy fuck, this shit's alive, you know? And and for me, the the lesson of doing so much improv- improvisation was always just trying to get out of the way and allow that thing, which was coming through from a much higher place, to just come through you, you know? So I think if, if there's anything that is like the guiding force of Lightning Orchestra, it's tapping into that as like the reality of what's always happening and and kind of like, acknowledging that to me like the the social commentary that's inherent to that is just basically everything is interdependent and we're all creating this together and so that's where a lot of like to me like the the content and the subject matter of the songs like lyrically is is sort of like based out of but yeah like energetically that's that's sort of the driving force behind it i would say that's a beautiful thing. And I, I feel that. And as, as a spiritual person, you probably know I'm a big yogi. So like I'm big into energy work and, and the, um, the idea of humans as these cosmic beings that we are sort of these vessels Thanks. for energy and that we have the ability to channel that in beautiful, magical ways. And I think music is one of the primary ways in which to do that. I think you know, what you're talking about is, is this really magical thing. And, and I love that you mentioned the wolf pack as well, because Kebby is, it's like the music plays him, right? It's, it's exactly. That's what, like you articulated the, what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you're tapped into, and for me, it's like, always oh, like get it, getting as big as I possibly can, getting into my full expansion of a being and then just completely surrendering so that that which is already like written basically on that higher level can flow through 
yeah. which, you know, that's always the struggle for me of improvisation, but th those guys can do it at like the highest level I've ever seen, you know, where it's, there's no latency between the inspiration and the actualization of it. Yeah. It's a magical thing to witness. And I always feel so lucky to be in spaces with musicians like that and in, with music in that spirit because you can feel it like it's a it's a feeling you know like I, people send us records all the time you know and you can tell where certain folks are vibrating higher than others and there was something about your music that really spoke to this you know spiritual consciousness within me and within us you know as humans that i think is really powerful and i think it's really interesting to release an album like that in 2020, where music is sort of commoditized and, you know, art is being, you know, bought and sold like something out of a manufacturing plant in some instances, right? Or in some cases, depending upon how you look at it. So can you talk about, because I just think it's so rebellious to release a record with, you know, 10 minute funk jams, you know, like sure. it is 1972, like this isn't, you know what I mean? Like this album would fit beautifully in that era, but we're not there. Can you talk about that? And this, this sort of like, let's shake up the gumball machine a bit. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, I hope it would kind of fit in that era, but also like, you know, I want to sound like it's from the future too. I think the thing with lightning orchestra and like the way I approached this stuff and the way we approached it as a band was, I wanted it to be like, you couldn't really tell where it was from, you know, because there's, there's stuff on there with like, you know, drum, drum machine, we call the, uh, we call them the robot drums, you know, where we have like the drum pad playing like 808 beats and stuff like that. And then we have like really out like synthesizer stuff. I mean, yeah, it could all be from the past. Um, but yeah, I think that w when, when it comes to like what, you know, is this going to be commercially viable or thinking in terms of that train of thought, like, um, yeah, I don't know. There just didn't feel like when we were making the record, I literally would have moments when I was in the studio where I was like, this is fucking insane. Like I, w I was literally like, I, I defy you to listen to this song. Like I was, I really did have that feeling like what you're saying about it being rebellious was like I don't care like I, I was aware of how unconventional or like how it might not work to have a song that's more than 11 minutes long which ends with like a you know three minute like snake fight solo between a saxophone and a trumpet over a bunch of like crazy like predator sounding synthesizer sounds you know and stuff like that but it was also just like that was the biggest thing about that jam about the Elliott street jam was that like it, it gave me the courage to do shit like that because we didn't we didn't care i all i cared about was making music that i liked and that probably the people in that basement were gonna like you know of course as a musician you want your music to reach as many people as possible and and, and go out into the world and do its thing but in terms of like who who i really like need to care or like it at all like probably just some of the people that were in that basement and those people were doing the most insane shit I've ever seen you know and and, and the the biggest thing about that was like sometimes you have to deconstruct 
in order to have actual freedom to do anything. Sometimes you have to completely vomit everything out to get on the other side of fear and do something that's actually like new and, and, and cool. So that was the approach to that music for me because, you know, we've been playing covers and, and we've been playing, we play the same Phala song for, you know, what, 25 or 30 minutes sometimes. And that was just what had become normal at that point. So to me, having a song that was 10 or 11 minutes long uh, wasn't, wasn't that crazy within the vein of that kind of music. And by the time we made the record, it was like, I wasn't trying to have an Afrobeat band per se. You know, the, the record is very influenced by Afrobeat, but it's also like, you know, sometimes it sounds like a metal song, you know, like the end of power sounds insane. It sounds like it's, it could be a metal song, you know? And, and that was what I wanted it to have was that breadth uh, and that level of freedom the way that these jams had where they could go anywhere they wanted and I tried to do it as a producer and as a songwriter um, in a way that was still tasteful and not just like yeah we're fucking around and like not like masturbatory or like no holds bar we'll do anything we want like I still tried to do it in a way that it made sense and and all the parts and different components supported each other and and there wasn't anything there that really didn't need to be there you know i don't if that makes sense no it does and i think it speaks to what makes great improvising anyway like i think you know you you listen to whether it's the grateful dead or the bauman brothers or any of the jam bands quote unquote right there is this sense of you have to have a, a, I had the point right at the front of my head. I really did. It's, it speaks to this idea of you're pushing the audience and the listener towards an edge. You're pushing them towards an edge. You're leading them off the cliff, but you, you don't go over it quite. You don't go over it all the way. You know what I mean? Right. You, 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 you test the limit, you push you push, you push, but you just, you pull back just enough, just enough so that. I also, yeah, exactly. And I also think that if you have something that you're actually convicted about, like if you have something that you feel that you're really trying to get across and say, and that that thing is coming from a pure place and you truly feel that that thing is, is real and true and is going to be a contribution, it can give you more um, freedom to do that. You know, yeah. like if I know, if I know, like, I'm going to, I'm going to take you on this journey and it's going to be kind of crazy sometimes, but what's at the heart and the essence of it is something that I think is going to be important and we can share together, then, then I can kind of gain your trust. You know yeah. what I mean? And we can, and we can do it together as a team. Um, but yeah, like you don't want to, it was never about alienating anybody like when i say i defy you to listen to this that's just like that's like the rebellious part of me that's like i feel so deeply about the conviction of what it is that's being said on the record and what's being shared that when i say i defy you to listen to it it's that same attitude of like if you don't like this you weren't meant to like it anyway right. you know what i mean it's, it's kind of that same attitude of, of the elliott street jam but it's I, in a way it's like i hope it's a lot more 
inclusive because this isn't just for musicians or anything. This is, you know, this is not for people who are jamming. They're not playing on the record with us. This is a listening experience. And so like, yeah, I, I think, I hope that it accomplishes that, like bringing people into the fold. It's, supposed, it's meant to be very inclusive, but it's also meant to take you on a journey that you can surrender to. Like it's supposed to be a big enough container that you can just be like, oh, I'll let go. Like they, they got this. And the, the challenge in making this sort of music in, in such a long form is like, if we let up for even a, a second, if we lose faith in ourselves or if we lose connection to that thing then we then we fucking we let the container implode and yeah. it's so easy when you're making an 11 minute song for somebody to get to like you know four six minutes seven minutes and be like all right next track so like that was the challenge how do we keep this shit constantly building yeah. with momentum and intensity but there's enough ebbs and flows that it doesn't exhaust you and and keep people in on the ride, you know? So, and I hope that we did that, that, you know, when I would show people the record, that was something I was always looking for before we released it. When I would share it with people, I would just look at them and see how, see how they're taking it in. Do they lose interest? Do they start talking about something? Are they, well, that's cool. That's an interesting choice. Like, do, do they hang with it the whole time? And, you know, for the most part, and I would specifically show it to people that I expected to lose interest. And I didn't see that most of the time. So I would be checking, like, are they bobbing their head? Like, what's their body language? Like, are they, are these people with us? And and so most of the time, it seemed like they were. So, you know. I think you nailed it. I think, thank you. And there's another thing about that that, like, I feel like is is missing a lot in newer music, which is, it's like sort of a patience. It's sort of like, like, it's it's a weird thing because, like, I really like bands yeah, I mean, like, you can, if you really want to hear Patience, listen to, like, Ella Fitzgerald or something. You know what I mean? And you can hear, like, the the thickness of the stillness in the room. And this is something, like, kind of different. Like, I like I like bands like that. I like bands like Mazzy Star, where they're like, we're going to play a really slow song, and we're really going to take our time, and it's not, a, like, a bunch of flashy stuff. Like, this is different because it's more, like, adrenaline grooves. But it's also, it's a long form. It's like, it's patience. We're going to take our time getting to this place, you know? So absolutely, that was, that, was, that was part of the ethos behind it as well. Yeah. And I think about when you, you mentioned patience and you mentioned this idea of like sitting with an album. Um, I got my footing, just as a little bit of background, I got my footing in the metal scene. And so cool. um, the, the band that I always think about when the word patience comes up is sleep. Right. And the, are you familiar with Dope Smoker at all? Uh-uh. So this is something that you actually might really be interested in. It was a it, it was this record that they made before they broke up. Did you wait, did you say sleep? Yes, like sleep. Oh, okay. Like, I ha I have I have heard some of sleep. I thought you said sleep. Um, no, no, but sleep. yeah, I've I've listened to a bit of sleep. I haven't gone like super hard on their catalog, but yeah, I appreciate them as a band for sure. Yeah. And so the, the record Dope Smoker, for anybody listening who's not familiar, is this album, it's one song. It's an hour long song. And it's the, it, it took them two years to actually get it on tape because they recorded it analog style. And they've never played it in its entirety live. 
Um, but it's all based on these like Indian Southeast Asian percussion rhythms of like, it's all about timing and like where the oh, drums yeah. are hitting, you know? So the, 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 the structure of the song is almost backwards in the sense that the rhythm guitar essentially keeps the time, but the drums are really the focus of the piece because it's the, the drums are hitting sort of off. It's, it's, you should, it's really interesting how they wrote it and how they got it all together, but it's an hour. It's one hour. And yeah, yeah. it's you, if you're gonna do it, you have to be willing to sit and listen to it for an hour. And that's a big ask, right? Yeah. And this idea of, you know, forcing a listener to sit down, sit still and just, like you talked about that surrender, right? That give yourself up to the art and just see what happens, right? See what happens, see what comes out. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is I hear a lot of Fela in this record. I was just gonna talk, I'm so glad you just, cause I was like, I can't talk about any of this without mentioning Fela. Like I wouldn't have done any of that without Fela, you know? Um, so was there more to that question other than I hear, hear a lot of Fela? Like, okay. No, I just um, want you to talk about him. Yeah, I was just a, I was like, oh, I can't, I need to talk about this, which is like, yeah, I wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened without Fela for me, you know, like, because what you're talking about, what we're talking about, about like creating this container where people, it's, it's a trance-like state. It creates a trance. It, it creates like a sort of hypnotic thing where people can just like surrender into it like what I was talking about that container and that's all Fela you know that that's all Fela and and you know I discovered Fela when I was probably 18 and for the first time and before that you know it, I was talking about this in another interview the other day but it's like he's the interviewer is like when did you start getting into African music and I was like well, that's that's like a really non-linear thing because so much of the American music that I loved growing up as a kid was black American music, which you could also say has its roots in African music, but also it was like, yeah, like bands like war. And then like shortly after getting into war, getting really into the talking heads. Um, and of course, like a lot of their later stuff is very heavily influenced by Fela's music and other African music. And so then when I found Fela, who was like, holy shit, this is incredible. And I mean, like probably the first record I heard of Fela's was Underground System. I think that's what it's called um but it's got uh it's got underground or no no it was maybe underground it's got underground spiritual game um uh what is what is like my favorite song of his that's on that record it's like the most beautiful horn arrangement anyway i don't know it doesn't matter but it was one of his later records it was it was after it was like in the egypt 80 record and then i went from there and got into his entire catalog but especially playing that stuff for a lot for a couple years and it was a sacred experience there's nothing i hate more than trying to cover a fela song and somebody fucking up where the actual polyrhythms are, you know, or somebody playing a horn line or a head starting on the wrong beat or something like that. Because yeah, it's like, well, what the, why are we doing this? 
you know, I can't play this music and if we're not going to play it right and true to what it was, <clears throat> I don't want to play it at all, you know, because it was a, it was a deeply spiritual experience. It was, that music to me is sacred, you know, mm-hmm. so that was in creating uh, these songs, <clears throat> it was very much informed by, by playing his stuff, you know, and playing those long forms and how do we do this in a way where it's like, yeah, we can create that space for someone to just let go, you know, and, and go on this journey. So I, yeah, none of that would have happened. His entire philosophy towards music <clears throat> was, you know, Fela. And I feel the same way too, very much. After you've recorded a song, he wouldn't play it anymore. After he'd recorded the song, it was done. It was time to move on to the next thing, you know, which I respect. And, and he viewed, what he was doing as a form of African classical music. And he's like, these classical artists are making these long pieces with many different movements and there's no time constraints. They don't have to worry that they're not going to get a song on the radio. You know, there's no radio. Um, and, and, that, and so his, of course, his approach to music was very, you know, there was no boundaries and it was unconventional and he could do whatever he wanted. And that's how I, that's how I felt. It was like, well, there's no rules. We can do whatever we want. <clears throat> Doesn't matter. We don't have much at stake, you know. Probably no one will hear the record anyway. You know, <laughs> that was that was the feeling yeah. at the time, and and um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That. Fela is the man. I I was introduced to Fela by way of Zach a number of years ago, and I introduced Zach to Fela. Yeah, so it's all you. It all comes back to you. Um, Zach, Zach, by the way, was one of my camp campers. When, when, <laughs> funny. Right? Just for the listener, he, he was listener. a camper at Camp Cam, and I was counselor for several years, and then he later became, uh, he worked for the camp, and we worked together. That's awesome. Um, That's friends and co-workers. He's an amazing musician. Yeah. He is a wonderful musician indeed. Um, so a couple more questions, a couple more serious questions for you, and then I have a whole bunch of fun questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. So as the album is out, um, can you talk a little bit about what the response has been to this record? I mean, this is three years in the making for you guys, and, you know, that's no small feat, you know, to to and there are a lot of people in this band the log- i can't even imagine the logistics you all had to go through in order to actually get this thing on tape quote unquote um and i can't imagine how good it feels to have it out what are people saying about it people liking it yeah it's been received really well so far um it's gotten a lot of really good reviews i haven't seen any negative reviews I don't know if anybody writes negative reviews anymore, what's the point, but it's got a ton of really good reviews. Um, it got a four-star review in Mojo Magazine. It got a four-star, it got a really great review in Shindig, I think a four-star review, and a four-star review in uh, Record Collector. I don't know if Shindig does stars. Got a great review in Psychedelic Baby. I mean, it's, it's gotten, whatever, who cares? It's got a bunch of good reviews. It's been received well. Um, th- it was on, the first single was on the BBC Six A-list for like a month which was unexpected. Um, and I think they're starting to play the second single, White Tiger, more frequently again now. They wanted to do like an impact date for that sometime in August, um, which was like, you know, given the reality of the pandemic, I, I would say that things with the record have been going pretty pretty well. 
it's not, you know, the, our label is based out of the UK. So most of the, the buzz about it, I feel like, in the places where people are finding out of it, about it mostly are more in the UK and Europe than they are in America, <clears throat> which, you know, I hope we can find a way to get it to more fans in America so that they know about it. But um, yeah, it's been great. The, the, our record label is, is called Acid Jazz Records and they have a, a whole ro roster of, you know, really cool funk and soul and, and kind of jazzy stuff. And uh, they've been really great to work with. Um, yeah, I think it's been going well. You know, the, the, the pandemic happening pretty much right when the record was supposed to release is like been a bit of a bummer because you know we didn't really get to do a record release we're about we were leaving on tour the day that everything basically shut down um so right now it's kind of tricky it's like well what do i do because it's such a big band i can't even really bring the band together as a whole to work on new material so i just rented a rehearsal space and i think i'm going to start putting together at least like sectionals where we can get together with four or five people at a time rhythm section and then the horn section and stuff like that um yeah that's great but it's, it's it's been going well good good i'm glad to hear that um where can the people find it if they would like to buy it support it how do people find the album um you can <clears throat> you know google lightning orchestra source and deliver u.s suppliers if you're in the u.s if you're in the uk you can order it a lot of different places if you're in the uk or europe um but you can also order it directly through the Acid Jazz website. If you go to any of our social media stuff, or if you go to Instagram, um, there's a link tree. If you go to the Lightning Orchestra Instagram or my personal Instagram, which is Hologram Chad, there's a Lightning Orchestra link tree, which has links to U.S. suppliers. Uh, yeah. You can Great. get it like through those places. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I have some sort of miscellaneous questions that I ask everybody when we do interviews on this program. Um, favorite new album to come out this past year? Yeah. Again, I'm going to give you three answers instead okay. of one. Fine. But right now it's by this band called S Products. Okay. Um, and the album is called Suicide Beat. And uh, <clears throat> the, all the three bands that I'm like obsessed with in the past year uh, formed out of one band called Sextile. Okay. And um, it, Sextile, when it when it first started, had I think four members, but the core members of the band were this guy Brady Keane and this woman named Melissa. I'll probably get her last name wrong, but I think it's Scuduto or Scudato or something. <clears throat> it was kind of like a post-punky. Sextile was kind of like more of like a post-punk sort of like industrial sort of like EBM type band. Like they were very influenced by this band from Germany called uh, DAF. Uh, MS-20 synthesizer, you know, drum machine. <clears throat> and then they splintered off. They kind of split up the band for a while and both went in a different direction. Brady started this group called Panther Modern, which is another, probably my favorite band right now. Um, and he made this record called Los Angeles 2020. And that's a lot more, kind of took the post-punk aspect away from it. And it's a lot more just like driving sort of industrial kind of electronic music. Not industrial necessarily, but there's elements of that. It's very, it's really futuristic and cool, but it's also rooted in something from the past. And then um, Mel started this band called S Products with 
this one other guy who I think his name is Kyle. And their new record is amazing. It's called Suicide Beat. And those three bands I'm just like obsessed with right now. Sick. That's badass. Um, most memorable concert you've seen in the last five years? Damn. Oh. It's, this is like a weird thing where I feel like the answer that's coming to me is the thing that's in my mind is not the thing. It's not the right answer. I've seen so many good concerts in the last five years, especially because I've been on tour so much. Man, I got to see, we played with Bjork when I was on a tour with Mateel. We played this festival where in one day I got to, we played the same day and I got to see Krungbin, uh, Flying Lotus, Summer Back set, and Bjork. And we talked to Bjork backstage very briefly. But when Bjork was performing, there was a lightning storm going on the entire time without any rain. And it was just like, and you know, her band was like six or seven flautists, a harpist, and like somebody playing like electronic drum pads or something. It was like just such an insane band. And it was a very, very, very magical experience. The other thing that comes to mind is I saw Paul Simon on his uh, on his like last tour, and um, it was incredible. I mean, that was easily one of the best shows I've ever seen. He had like a twenty-piece band, and the sound was amazing. I saw it at Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta. It was very much this last-minute thing because we lived very close to, to Lakewood Amphitheater, and we we're just like scrambling to get there. Um, and I still feel like I'm not answering this question. I, I know there's something I've liked more than both of those. I can't think of what it is right now. No, that's okay. That's okay. Are there any I'll concerts you know. that you wish you hadn't seen in the last five years? What's the worst? I wish I, the wish I had not seen? Yeah. Is there any moment? Mm. There's a, we all have that moment where you're standing in the crowd and you go, oh, oh, this isn't good. This isn't going well. Were there any uh, moments like that that you can remember that are worth telling? <laughs> yeah, let me think. I, I probably don't retain that knowledge as much. <laughs> uh, God, that's such a good question. I hate that I'm not like having, let me think of just, let me get over the fear of not having an answer to this for a second. You can edit it out. Yeah. Um, something that I was just like, oh, that was bad. <laughs> Probably something that would like make me mad or even exist. Jeez, I do feel like there's stuff like that I've seen. Um, I don't know. I don't think I can answer that one. I don't know what it would be. That's okay. That's all right. Um, if if folks are in Atlanta when all this when all of this ends, hopefully, um, what are some of your favorite local spots to go see music? Where should the people support if they can? Yeah. Who knows if these spots will even exist when we get on the other side of this. But um, the Earl, um, 529, Elliott Street, Aisle 5, you know, uh, Variety Playhouse. I'm just naming, like, every venue in Atlanta. Uh, Terminal West, you know, those are all good places to see music here. 
uh, a lot of the DIY spaces have already kind of gone under, um, which is a bummer. But yeah. Is the gallery doing all right? Of course, gallery's great. Um, the gallery is more a space I go to for the improv sessions. Um, they, I don't, yeah, I mean, they do host shows sometimes. But um, yeah, the gallery's still doing every Sunday. It's doing its Sunday Night Jazz series outside now. Oh, good. So, which is which is great. So people can still go do that. It's out, outdoors, so there's airflow, and you can social distance, wear your mask, and that's that's awesome. still a thing you can do, which is really great. Yeah. That, that's a really beautiful thing to hear because I know that it comes from a place of wanting to give back to the community so much, you know. And absolutely. And that is that makes my heart very happy. Um, who are some local musicians in your area that the people should be supporting right now that you think are great? Yeah, there's so many. Um, Quinn, Mark Quinn Mason, uh, he actually just released a record, uh, which is called Touch. You can find it on Bandcamp. Um, Chris Suarez, who plays tenor saxophone in Lightning Orchestra is releasing a record as well under his name uh i think it's really good jordan manley who plays drums in lightning orchestra <laughs> releasing a record solo record i think he's also releasing a thing with our friend tj who plays bass um i'll be posting stuff like that probably up on the lightning orchestra page there's this group here called clark sound with this guy clark who is just a genius um there's a band called Improvement Movement with a couple of friends. I think their music is great. Uh, Jordan just started a group with our friend Marshall and our friend Jonah, who also plays in Mateel, called The Mount, which is like a really cool sort of like gospel trio. And I mean, they make really, really beautiful songs. Marshall Ruffin is like an Atlanta gem that the entire world should know about. He, I mean, he he literally writes like Beatles songs that never got written, like not like a guy that's trying to write songs like the Beatles, just like songs that were like in the Beatles song, like Escrow and Consciousness, but they never like brought down. Yeah. He's amazing, and uh, these songs are kind of I think mostly spearheaded by him. That group is called The Mount. Um, cool band that my friend Grace has called Karaoke. But good luck finding any of their music online because you Google karaoke, it's virtually impossible. Uh, <laughs> oh, my friend Chris Yonkers has a band called Green Screen, which is great, super awesome. So much, so much amazing stuff going on in Atlanta. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And my final question for you today, I ask everybody this, why do you love to play music? Well, I just found a potato chip in my bed. Nice. It's like a perfectly round potato chip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why well, I love to play music. I think for me, music has always been about community. It's been about connecting with people. I mean, art in general, the expression, the creation of art is like, this is what I'm about. This is what's important to me. It's about like putting what's on the inside of you into the outside world and surrounding yourself with what you have on the inside and hey this is what my universe is like it does it resonate with what yours is like you know hopefully so um yeah it's about community it's about reaching people connecting with people collaborating with people letting them know 
but yeah, this is this is this is what I think is going on. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you for a lovely, lovely, lovely conversation, Travis. Thank you. You have such good questions. Thank you. Have really good.